This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the gospel-centered life. And as I shared last week, this gospel-centered life content was one of the major shifts in the understanding of the gospel in my life. It was probably about 10 years ago that I first encountered this. Prior to that, I knew that Jesus Christ had dealt with my sins on the cross. I knew that he had altered my trajectory from death to life. I'd already gone to seminary. I could spout off all the theology necessary to understand the atonement and Christ's work on the cross. But even with all that said, I was still living in legalism. There was this disconnect between what I professed to be true about God's love for me, his his favor on me, and how I was living my daily life. The gospel-centered life was the catalyst for God to radically expand my understanding of his grace and reveal all the ways that I was attempting to earn or at least contribute to my own salvation. Now, you're probably going to hear me say this a number of times over the coming weeks, and you just might as well get used to it, because when you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, it permanently alters or changes God's disposition towards you. As a result, when we trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he does right now. In Jesus, of course. But conversely, and I think this is what was really meaningful for me, is conversely, the same is true. That there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any less than he does right now in Jesus. I hope you can see why that would be considered freedom. Because, you know, a lot of times we project upon God our, our affection that we have towards our parents, towards our family. That's oftentimes where that, where that comes from. Um, and, you know, even the best of parents, the loving parents, say they love their kids unconditionally. But we experience, right, because our parents are sinful people, we experience times where there's a breakdown in that, where we say we love them unconditionally, but our, our ire really, you know, I, I as a parent have lost my cool countless times with my kids. And, and there are times where my, my kid might, you know, Elizabeth or Austin or Catherine might feel that I, I don't love them in that moment. And maybe, I, maybe they did something that I'm just like really annoyed by and I don't care for them. I mean, I of course love them, but you know, I, I might be like, I don't really want to see you right now. You ever, I don't know if you, any parents can relate to that, right? And so, and so as a result of that, we can feel that same way. We project that upon God, that maybe there's something that I've done, that I know God loves me, right? I, I profess that in word, but I, my feeling on the matter is, he doesn't really want to see me right now. And so I, I hope that we can recognize that there is freedom in knowing that in Jesus, God doesn't love us any less. God's not like, get out of my face. I don't, I don't want to talk to you right now. When God has made you his own, we can't screw it up. Hallelujah on that because I'd find a way to do it. So last week, we focused on, let's see, we focused on this diagram, right, the cross chart. And my suggestion was, and I know this is super pixelated, I I wish I had better resolution graphics, but I don't. But I suggested that we need to expand our understanding of that top line, which is our understanding of God's holiness, and that bottom line, that growing awareness of our sinfulness. Now, just as a reminder, this doesn't mean that we are becoming more sinful, but that God is revealing more and more about our nature that is in opposition or disobedience to Him. Things that might be hidden below the surface, 
right? God's slowly peeling back those layers of brokenness. And so as we see, the more those two lines diverge, the more they grow apart, the larger that cross looms for us. I closed last week encouraging you all to participate in the tongue exercise. So for one week, you weren't supposed to gossip, complain, defend yourself, make excuses, or boast. How'd that go? Any of you guys make it through the day without, you know, doing any of that? I don't know, I'm not going to assume just because you didn't raise your hand that you didn't, but three days? The whole week? You know, if anyone raised their hand for the whole week, I was going to call you a liar, but... Because, um, I mean, so much of this is, is human nature in our, in our brokenness, in our fallen state, that we just, we need, especially for me, it's defending myself. One of my favorite, one of the authors of the Gospel-Centered Life, Jack Miller, I've used this before, there was a situation where he was being unfair, like, really unfairly criticized. Someone was railing him, and he whispered under his breath, you don't know the half of it. I'm far worse than you think I am. Man, that's, that's, that is something that I aspire to in Jesus. He was so secure in his identity in Jesus. Um, anyway, a- after church, I was chatting with some folks like I usually do, and I ended up walking through. I live about 10 houses down, and a- after I walked through the door, it was about 45 minutes after the service ended, and the first thing my wife Sarah said to me when I walked through the house was, well, I already broke all of your rules. Um, you know, like she's frantically trying to, trying to make lunch, for three kids, and said kids are fighting with one another, and, you know, your spouse is nowhere to be seen to help bail you out, tempers are going to flare. And I think that's often the experience that many of us have. I don't know, maybe you lasted longer than 45 minutes, but the the point of the exercise was to remind us how deeply we need the gospel. Because so often we tend to go about our lives as if we're just pretending we're okay. We compare ourselves with others. You know, as, as long as we seem to be better than most people in some kind of arbitrary estimation that we've created, we feel confident that we're doing the right thing. But, you know, when we try to not complain about anything for a week, we realize we're not nearly as stable or grateful as people as we give ourselves credit for. We all struggled with living a certain, you know, quote-unquote, perfect way. And that was only for seven days, and it was just dealing with one element of personal holiness. The exercise reminds us of our deep need for the gospel because we spend a lot of time pretending that we're something that we're not. But the truth is that we're much farther from God's perfect standards than we would care to admit. All right, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them. Um, We're just going to do a flyover of this passage, but it's going to set the theme for us this morning. It's it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. So last week I shared that the gospel, right, the good news of Jesus Christ is not a once and done event in our spiritual lives. It's not this thing that you point back to as if I remember, you know, I I went to the altar call, I prayed the sinner's prayer, right, I've got this thing that I'm putting on the shelf to admire, It's not just that, but it's meant to be something that sustains us in the kingdom of God. So listen to how Paul encourages the church of Colossae. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So do you see that connection? Because of Jesus' death, we are able to be 
uh, we're able to be presented holy and blameless. And we're going to keep circling on that and put a pin in that over the next couple of weeks because that is what our identity is. Right now, before God, God views us because of Jesus as holy and blameless and above reproach. And then listen to what Paul continues in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, continue to pursue this, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the text shows us that God wants to and has refined us to present us as holy and blameless. And the path to that destination is to continue in faith, to be stable and steadfast. Paul encourages us, don't shift from that gospel that you've heard. Don't just put it on the shelf and then maybe forget about it, but that this is supposed to be a regular part of your life, and we need to stay tethered to this gospel. And so this morning, what I want us to look at is is, uh, two avenues that we often, that prevents us from doing just that. Look at that cross chart again. This is what our spiritual lives should look like. That's the idealized understanding, expansion in those two areas of God's holiness and our sinfulness. But often, this is what it looks like. We reduce those top and bottom lines. And and as the language they use is, we shrink the cross. The Gospel of Unsend Life says this, I quote, when we shrink the cross... There is something lacking in our understanding, appreciation, or application of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Something's lacking in our understanding of it, our appreciation of it, or how we are applying it into our lives. Now, this habit, I would say, is a coping mechanism for us. That it's ways in which we attempt to contribute and participate in our own salvation, either by working really hard to try to earn God's favor, kind of reducing that top line, or by neglecting the places, raising that bottom line, neglecting the places that were out of step with His standards for us. And so these two behaviors we're going to call this morning pretending and performing. So let's look at them in turn. So first, pretending. Pretending is where we make ourselves out to be something that we are not. We're minimizing our sin. It's raising that bottom line in the chart. Now, in many ways, I would suggest that this is part of what it is to be human in a fallen world. I mean, who really wants to look inwardly and acknowledge all the places that we're not meeting God's standards, all the places we don't measure up, especially because we live in the type of society where all of our flaws feel like they're front and center. There are countless studies that show how social media like Facebook or Instagram make you feel pretty crappy about yourself. When we see the airbrushed, highly selective snapshots of the lives of others, we recognize that we don't and feel like we can't measure up. In a culture where you are constantly bombarded with messages of, you aren't good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not wealthy enough, you're not successful enough, can really be difficult to get the motivation to find yet another place where you feel like you're failing. It's hard to be vulnerable. If we were honest with ourselves, or at least we feel like if we were honest with ourselves and we came clean about our, under, our, our shortcomings, we acknowledged our shortcomings, many of us feel like other people, or maybe even God, would reject us, that we're not good enough, 
We're living this like facade that we try to keep up and we feel like if we let that go, if there's cracks in it, people are going to reject us. God's going to reject us. But God knows better. I mean, He knows everything. He already knows the sin that exists in our lives. We can't fool Him. We can't hide anything from Him. Frankly, God knows your sin better than you know your sin. He knows those things that are below the surface that you haven't even come to terms with yet. But the gospel, and this is really important, the gospel provides a safe and secure place, a space for us to be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with God, vulnerable with God in acknowledging the places where we feel broken and not be rejected. Because as I said at the beginning, there's nothing that we could do to make Him love us less. In Jesus, He is completely and totally satisfied in us. So what might pretending look like in our life? There are countless coping mechanisms we use to feel that we're just okay. See if any of these resonate with you. Maybe you use dishonesty. You say to yourself, you know what, I'm, I'm not that bad. You have spiritual amnesia. You felt that tug of conviction from the Holy Spirit, you know, recognize that, man, maybe I'm wandering a little bit where I shouldn't, but you just repress it. You stuff it down deeper, pretending it doesn't exist. It's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know if this would resonate with any of you. It's, it's horrible advice. It's not advice. But, you know, you ever, like, drive your car and you hear a rattle and then your mind starts going of, like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what this mechanic bill is going to cost for that. And so you just, like, crank the radio a little bit, like... I don't want to think about this right now, so we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist, right? We do that with our sin all the time, right? We pretend whatever flaw we're dealing with that doesn't exist. One of the most likely culprits for many of us is comparison, right? I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We want to think better of ourselves, and we can, you can always find someone who's far worse. But what's implicit in this is the hope that God's going to grade on a curve, right? As long as we're in like that 75th percentile or higher, I don't, I don't know what a passing grade is. We think that as long as we, you know, can just stay above, we'll make the cut and we'll be okay. We don't need to make radical changes in our lives. Or to pity, piggyback off this, we make excuses. We trick ourselves into thinking like, well, this, this isn't the real me. Like, everybody else is doing it. It must not be that bad. Friends, as I was preparing for this talk, I had somewhat of an existential crisis Right? One, of the places that I, and I, uh, one of the places that I use comparison is to justify, and to justify me, my behavior is driving. Right? There are a lot of crazy drivers out there, and I, I like to think of myself as a pretty responsible driver. Now, one of my pet peeves, those of you who know kind of the Swissville area are going to get this, one of my pet peeves is people who don't obey the traffic laws in Swissville. In particular, if you go down Monongahela, so let's just say, you know, you, you make the loop around, go down Shoyer, go through the light, and you go down Monongahela, right? There's an on-ramp for 376 East, and I'm sorry if I'm calling any of you guys out, right? You know, you're heading down towards that BP gas station, there's that on-ramp. Now, that on-ramp is supposed to be for people coming up Monongah Monongahela Avenue, right? There's a big no turn on left, or no turn on left, that's not a thing. No left turn, there's a big no left turn sign there. Um, but every day I see cars like making the left there to turn onto that on-ramp and it just like grates on me and I'm like, clearly they're not very good drivers. Like they can't even p follow the posted, posted uh, rules. That's the background, right? I'm very judgmental as you can see. 
Now to my existential crisis. So Catherine started daycare, my youngest, who's three, started daycare about four months ago in Edgewood. Right, she's at uh, Edgewood Daycare, kind of right next to the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf. Now, coming out of their parking lot, right onto Swissvale Avenue, there's, it's a pretty busy intersection, and the traffic to the left, coming from you know, Edgewood, where Edgewood Avenue turns into Swissville Avenue, they don't have a stop sign. Right? And so, when that light changes at Maple, sometimes you get like, a lot of traffic, you've got to sit there and wait for a while. But the stop sign there at leaving the parking lot says right turn only, and then it gives like a couple of different time windows. And they seem to, to uh, correspond to when, you know, Edgewood Primary would have their arrival and dismissal. Well, the first few weeks of daycare, every time I was at that stop sign, I turned right. Because, you know, when it was in one of those windows, because I'm a rule follower, that's just, that's how I'm wired. But as the weeks went on, I noticed nobody else does this. Like, just about every single car leaving that parking lot during those posted hours were going straight. And so, you know, turning right added a minute or two on my way home because I had to, like, go down a little farther towards Wilkinsburg and find a way to loop around before I could go down Race Street. So what did I do? I started ignoring the posted signs, right? I followed what everyone else did. Now, this might seem like a minor thing, but here, here's in this example... I'm both making excuses. Everyone else does it. Why shouldn't I? I don't need to obey that. It's okay. You know, initially, I, I started rationalizing it away because I was like, it's, it's for Edgewood Primary. Well, during the summer, there's no school in session, so it's fine. These posted hours don't apply to me. Well, now, I've gotten in the habit of going straight at that intersection, and now school's back in session, so, and I'm still going straight through that intersection. So, clearly, I'm just trying to find ways to excuse my behavior. Because right? I got this small window of time. I got to go back and pick up Austin from the bus stop. I can't afford to wait those extra few minutes. But distinct from that event, I I'm comparing. Right? At least I don't turn left on that 376 on-ramp. I obey the posted rules. But I don't obey the posted rules, clearly, as I've ex explained. Right? I got this very strong opinion in one area of life, but completely ignore the rule elsewhere. Now, you might say, like, Chris, you're totally overthinking the situation. It's not that big of a deal. But if I'm making excuses and defending why it's okay for me to break the rule here, just dealing with a minor traffic violation, how much more so will I protect my psyche, my way of life, my comfort, when it comes to something much grander in the scope of God's kingdom? If I can't obey a small rule that provides an extra minute or two of inconvenience, how am I to obey something the Lord puts in front of me that might completely upend my life? Pretending that we are better than we truly are or pretending that our sin isn't that bad is chronic to our lives. And the ramification of that is that we shrink the cross. It makes the cross feel like it's not that necessary in my life. You know, Jesus didn't have to do that big of a job. If, if I just have a very small window, a very small gap between those lines, you know, just Jesus just needed to polish me up a little bit. But the truth is, we're more than just a little scuffed up. The Bible says we were dead in our sins, not just limping along. We were dead in our sins, and we needed to be dramatically resuscitated by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus. So that's pretending. Let's look at the top line of the chart. See how we shrink the cross. 
by lowering that top line for performing. Performing is when we minimize God's holiness to a standard that we feel like we can meet. In short, performance is saying, I can earn God's approval. And so we strive and we toil and we try to hand all this stuff over to God like, God, look at all the good stuff that I've done, right? Will you love me now? As if we were indispensable to God and he needed our help and is somehow indebted to us. I want you to think about this right now. What is it that you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility. Let me say it another way. What is it that you are relying on to give you a sense of worth, of validation, of acceptance? Is it financial resources? Your job? Your outward appearance? This is really a diagnostic question. I'm inviting us to try to figure out what are we putting our identity and value in? What are those things we're looking to to give us worth? I'm going to say that a lot of us, myself included, put in what, what, we, what I call false righteousnesses, which I'm going to define that in a minute. We put it in things that aren't God. But the problem is those are really faulty ways to get self-worth. We look to these created things. It's actually what the Bible calls idolatry in a lot of ways. Not, you know, sitting down, bowing down to statues. But this is what kind of modern-day idolatry looks like. When we, we should be looking to Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and was raised again. That's what puts value in our lives. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important. But are they of first importance, or are they of second importance? C.S. Lewis has a quote about that. I, I'm going to butcher it, so I won't even give it, but look it up, right? If you, if you try to put the second things and make them first, you get nothing. It's basically what he says. We should be looking to Jesus for that. So, a false righteousness is anything we hold up to saying, I am enough other than Jesus Christ. So, here's some examples of false righteousness. A lot of these come out of the Gospel-Centered Life book. Come Tuesday, you can get your own copy. See if any of them res- resonate with you. So, job righteousness I am a hard worker, so God will reward me, trusting in our responsibility at our work. Family righteousness, because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness, man, this was me for a long time. I had a professor in seminary who said it takes you three years to get through seminary and five years to get over it. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, and I am on time to appointments, which makes me more mature than others. Fun story. When I was in college, I had a friend named Paul who uh, he was chronically late to everything. We would tell him that small groups started 30 minutes before it actually did, so he would actually arrive on time. And there were plenty of times he and I were supposed to have lunch together or have a meeting, and he would show up. I'd be waiting for 20 minutes for him to get there. And I'd get real frustrated in those times. Now, in fairness, I believe that some of that frustration is justified, but right, that's, there's a knife's edge to go on here, from I am being disrespected by his tardiness to because I'm not tardy like this, I'm a better Christian or a better friend or more honoring to God. Do you see how like, it's so easy to slip from one to the other? Whatever label you want to put on it, right? we use these actions and behaviors to 
kind of puff us up in our own minds. Here's another one. Tolerance righteousness. I like this one. I am open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. Now, here's two that aren't in the book, but I think highlight the discourse in the church today. This is me stirring the pot a little because I like to. Conservative righteousness. I uphold the original tenets of the Constitution. I always vote Republican. I care for the unborn. I am living the Christian life the way it was meant to be lived. Heard a lot of that. Conversely, what I'm going to call woke righteousness. I care for the poor and the oppressed. I make my voice heard on social media against police brutality. I am living closer to the call of Jesus than those other Christians. Now, I'm not trying to like, I'm stirring the pot a little bit. You guys know, I I stand up here, I, I, I preach against systemic racism and police brutality and those kinds of things. But it's so easy for those things to become a marker of, is that what sets me apart is that what gives me worth because I'm standing up for the right things, if you will? So often, we use these things, of these, these manufactured systems of belief to give us our worth as believers as opposed to Jesus Christ. And we, we also use it as a way to tear others down. I'm doing it the right way, therefore I am better than these other Christians who are doing it the wrong way, in my estimation. So that's performing. So what does this mean? Why does this matter in our lives? This is where I hope the rubber can meet the road a little bit for you. The result of our constant pretending and performing is that it shrinks that cross. It shrinks the gap between our understanding of God's holiness and our awareness of our sinfulness. And as a result of that, we rob the gospel of its power into our lives to work transformation in us. When we minimize the gap between those two lines, a few things happen. As I've said a, a few times, we, we start to think that we're okay. We're content with where we are. We're okay with the status quo, and we don't seek God's transforming power to continue its effective work, right? Because what, what is God's ultimate, right, this path of sanctification? What does God want us to do to grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? We have been declared righteous by God because of the gospel right here and now. Hebrews, I think it's 10.10, talks about this. We have been perfected, but we're also on this path to being perfected. We are on this path growing into what God has declared is already true of us. If we think I'm okay right as I am right now, we stunt the growth of that process of sanctification, that process of us being perfected. But I think what also comes about of that is, is when the cross is smaller, we, it, it reduces our affection for God. I quoted it last week, but it bears repeating, right? That Jesus said that the one who was forgiven much loved much, and the one who was forgiven little has a diminished love. Our love for God, I believe, is directly proportional to the work that we have sensed Him do in our lives. You know, if, I, if, I was, if I'm doing pretty good or if I feel like I'm doing pretty good, and I just need that little extra boost. Like, I'll be grateful, but it's like in a reserved kind of way. Like, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for patting me on the back. But if we see that we were helpless without his intervention, our affection is going to be that much greater for him. I owe you my life, as opposed to I just owe you a favor. 
Do you see how that's different there? So I think that, you know, so think about this. Where is the trend that you might be pretending or performing in your life? And again, just another plug, Tuesday night, we'll try to hatch this out a little bit more in a personal way so we can see this cross expand more and more in our lives. Now, before we go, I have one last diagnostic question I want you to ask yourself. And I've said it again, but again, it bears. As many of the good things of the gospel, uh, things of worth that are, are, are worth repeating, So as God thinks about you right now, what is the look on his face? As you come to the forefront of God's mind, what is his kind of visceral response towards you? Is it one of frustration, impatience, indifference, disgust? Or is God joyfully and completely satisfied in you right now? I would say anything other than a disposition of total satisfaction right now, regardless of what's going on in your life. I know that things can get a little complicated. We'll continue to hatch some of this stuff out as the weeks go on. But regardless of what's going on in your life, even if you feel like you're failing miserably with life, anything under, other than a disposition of total satisfaction right now reveals some type of performance mindset. It, it means that the... the, the that we're putting something, I've got to do X, Y, and Z to earn his love. It means that we've fallen into performance. If God's love is is dictated or his approval is dictated by what we're doing in the here and now. I'm not saying that we should be licentious and just go out and do whatever, you know, know, whatever the flesh wants us to do. Again, we'll, we'll keep exploring that. It's not an excuse to sin, but it also is a recognition that the things that we have done don't derail God's love for us because it's based upon what Christ has already done on your behalf. As I said at the beginning, there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more than he does right now in Jesus, and nothing that you can do to, get him to, to make, you love him, make him love you any less than he does right now in Jesus. As a pastor, I often have conversations with people who experience this disconnect in their ideal picture of faith and you know, what they acknowledge they're living their lives. They're, you know, maybe they're not following the straight and narrow the way they want to. And it's not uncommon for me to hear people saying, if I was just a better Christian. But I think that's a misnomer. I don't think you can be a good Christian or a bad Christian. I think you're either a Christian or you're not. If you are a Christian, it means that Jesus Christ, you've trusted in Christ to, to, and his atonement to, to, you know, clear over, cover over every mistake that you've ever made. And it means that right now, as God sees you, when he looks at you, he sees the glorious image of his son imbued upon you. Right? Christianity is not about following certain rules to get God's approval, but it's about faithfully leaning on the sacrifice that Jesus has already completed. If you are in Christ, God has already declared you as good. I think if you are a Christian, by default, you are a good Christian. Now, I, think, I know what people mean when they say that, But I think maybe a better way to understand this is, are you a Christian who is leaning into your identity as Christ? Are you trusting that work of God on your behalf, right? Trusting that God right now deeply loves you, or are you trusting in your own efforts, right? This is what Paul calls the flesh. Flesh doesn't mean just like you want to sin everywhere. The flesh is trusting in the natural part of yourself to gain that approval, to gain that worth. Friends, 
I want to encourage us to be a people that may be brutally honest with ourselves. May we see the gospel as the unification of God's love and His justice, His wrath and His mercy. May we understand that through Jesus Christ, we are more broken than we would ever care to admit, but at the same time, more deeply loved than we could ever imagine. As we continue in these these weeks to come, I want us to continue to explore the grandeur of what it means for our lives here, now, and in the age to come. Let's pray. God, may we trust in your provision for us. This week as we go about, may you be turning our eyes, opening our eyes to see the places where we are trying to earn your approval, where we fail to do something and then we have that, that kind of gut response is, oh, God's going to be angry with me. May we recognize that the wrath, any wrath you would have had for us and our brokenness was fully satisfied on Jesus on that cross. May we recognize the perfection that you have declared true to us. Our identity in Christ is that we are your, belo- that we are your beloved. May your Holy Spirit continue to fill our lives to guide us piece by piece, incrementally towards that reality in the here and now. Lord, we love you. Help us to expand our vision of you so that we can love you even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.